And the entire world was watching today as the USA visited Port of Spain, Trinidad to contest the last spot in the field of 24 for the 1990 World Cup in Italy. It was quite simply the most important soccer match the U.S. has played for the last two generations. A win and only a win would put the national team into the elite field for next year's World Cup. So we go, we go to the stadium and for sure it's a sea of red. When we got down there, we, we discovered that they had their tickets booked, right? They were already celebrating because they only needed a tie. Sold out National Stadium in Port of Spain, Trinidad, as better than 30,000 fans are here to witness what has to be the most important game in the history of the United States Soccer Federation. You know, knowing that we could you know, get a result there and, and qualify and get to the World Cup was on all of our minds. The U.S. must create some chances. They know, unlike other games, though, that they do need to score a goal. A 0-0 tie does them no good at all. I do remember passing the ball to Paul Caligiuri? And, and the way that he, he received the ball, it kind of, it wasn't like the best technique, which, but it, it kind of fell to him on a bounce. If I take it with my chest slash stomach, push it forward, and it just keeps bouncing. And then I think he had to take a long touch past the defender before he hit the ball. I'm thinking, I'm watching his leg wind up, and I'm like, he's not thinking about doing this, is he? <laughs> and sure enough. He brought it to my left and shot instinctively hard as I can with some pop stuff. He hits it, and I start running towards the goal because I'm thinking maybe it was going to be a rebound, you know. But then I see how high it goes up, thinking it's over the net. All week long, he never hit anything like that. And, you know, as I look up, yeah, it went in. Putting it in to Caligiuri. Beats the first man. A left-footed shot! Paul Caligiuri has scored a goal in the USA! Lead 1-0! They did come in some waves after that, uh, but we did a tremendous job of, of fighting that off. The USA has realized the dream. They will qualify for the World Cup in 1990. It was almost like a coming together of, of, of brothers on a team there. Um, and fighting and competing and uh, just just against all odds type of, of situation. Somehow uh, Paul Caligiuri scores uh, this amazing goal. I still watch it. I can't believe it went in, uh, but it was it was like it was meant to be. I can remember when that final whistle blew. You know, I didn't know if I was going to run in the locker room, jump over the stadium. I didn't know what to feel because. For the first time in 40 years, the U.S. was going to the World Cup. At the end of the day, it was probably um, the biggest goal, in, or one of the biggest goals in U.S. soccer history. And, and uh, I would like to think that you know part of the reason that we're here, at least, is because Paul Caligiuri put the ball in the back of the net. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey now, how is it going, everybody? Yours truly, Tim Hanlon, reporting for duty. It's good seats still available. What is it, you ask? Of course, it is the show, the only show that we know of that is weekly devoted to, not weekly, W-E-A-K-L-Y, but weekly as in every week, you know, every seven days or so, what used to be in the world, the world, the realm, same thing, of professional sports. Thanks for coming on by. And yeah, we do this for you every uh, every week or so. We, um, for five plus years now, um, despite all the odds against it, have been um, just burrowing into uh, what I still think is a maybe endless 
uh, assortment of uh, stories and teams and leagues and events that have happened in the uh, realm or the world, whichever word you want to use or put them together, like I just tried to do earlier, uh, of professional sports where for whatever reasons, for whatever reasons, they're they're no longer around. Uh, they've been forgotten. Uh, they're defunct. They uh, have been previously domiciled. They've, they've evolved into something else or they just frankly just disappeared into the ether. The fascination of all, all these things, we spent a ton of episodes sort of digging as, as to why. Um, this is not the time to go into those uh, particular reasons, but to um, uh, delve into another uh, episode of what. And in this case, what comes to us from the uh, mighty uh, important and fun sport of soccer or football, depending on where you you grew up and f- sort of uh, got first romanced and uh, intrigued with the game. Um, if you're a, a citizen of these here United States, um, you know it's been a, a pretty uh, interesting and wild ride, uh, the history of the sport of soccer here. Um, and our guest this week, Hal Phillips, has, I think, perhaps one of the best uh, sports books I have uh, read in the last, I don't know, four or five years, certainly of the ones that we've uh, kicked the tires on, on this here little podcast. And uh, it's called Generation Zero, Founding Fathers, Hidden Histories, and the Making of Soccer in America. Now, this is not just another sort of like apologist book about, you know, how how weak historically the United States has been in the realm of soccer or, you know, sort of a primer or sort of like a, a you know, a, a basic, uh, uh, you know, uh, soccer for dummies kind of book. And, th- and there'll be plenty of those, by the way, as the World Cup approaches later this year in in Qatar in in, uh, in November. But this book, perhaps uniquely, the only other sort of, uh, I guess, conversation that we've had that's kind of dovetailed this one uh, was our episode number 64 uh, with our pal Michael Agovino um, uh, when we talked about soccer's dark ages uh, his great book called The Soccer Diaries, uh, well worth getting. It's And his is a personal account, a personal um, trials and tribulations with falling in love uh, with the game of soccer as an impressionable uh, young man and then seeing the whole sort of professional thing in particular uh, in the form of the New York Cosmos and the North American Soccer League just literally just up and dying at the end of 1984. Well, that very much is is part and parcel of the conversation uh, this week uh, with Hal Phillips, um, but it, it, it's it's uh, actually a broader kind of survey, and I would argue more in depth and and uh, full of stories and anecdotes and um, newfound uh, factoids about really what transpired in that sort of evolutionary time from let's say the late 1960s when uh, the uh, uh, the tributaries of the North American Soccer League reform, that being the United Soccer Association and the National Professional Soccer League, uh, then merging to become the NASL in 1968, um, all the way until the World Cup in 1990 or 1994, uh, where the United States had gone from uh, a, a seemingly uh, a burgeoning and nationwide phenomenon in soccer in the 70s to being essentially on life support in 1985 on the pro level. And in many respects, resurrecting itself, somehow finding the will (laughs) to qualify uh, legitimately into the modern day World Cup scenario and rehabilitate 
the the soccer uh, experience here in the United States and regain some level, and it's still growing for sure, credibility about uh, the United States as being a soccer nation. And we know uh, in 1990 when the United States qualified in Italy, yes, they lost all their three games. And then, of course, the triumphant uh, hosting of, of World Cup uh, 1994 and the United States getting to uh, that uh, second round. Um, uh, and yeah, there've been some tribulations on the national team since then, but, but it's expected now that we make it right. And, you know, a reminder teams like Italy and the Netherlands, uh, over the last couple of cycles haven't made it before England certainly hasn't made it on a couple of different occasions. Right. So, but the United States now is, you would never have imagined this expectation 25, 30 years ago, especially in the dark ages of the late 80s when there was no professional league of any real sort. Indoors, really all, all, all that players really had. Um, and of course, that clip really sets it up, right? Um, the, the question, of course, um, if you're a soccer fan or maybe weren't, where were you on the uh, late afternoon of November 19th, 1989, about 32 plus years ago, when Paul Caligiuri hit that screamer of a shot. And as you heard by people like Bob Gansler and Tony Miola and Paul, uh, Paul himself, John Harks, Tab Ramos, uh, all part of that game against Trinidad and Tobago at Trinidad and Tobago in front of 35,000 plus screaming rabid fans who were basically, all they needed was a tie, Trinidad and Tobago, for them to get into the World Cup, not the United States. But alas, that's not what happened. And Bob Lee uh, God bless him. Uh, and hopefully we'll get him on the show at some point now retired from ESPN. He'd be the biggest soccer booster, I think at ESPN at the time. And, and ever since, um, set it up and, uh, our old pal JP Della camera, former guest on this show, calling that shot heard round the world, uh, with the, um, uh, support of, uh, one Seamus Mallon, another guy we'd like to get on this show, uh, sooner rather than later. Um, cinched the deal and um, qualifying uh, for 1990 uh, in many respects, as we'll hear from our guest, Hal Phillips. Um, there's there's some conjecture as to whether had the United States not won that game and qualified for the World Cup if, well, at least some people believe, and I think it's still debatable uh, and maybe it needs to be further investigated, that perhaps... FIFA might have taken away the 1994 World Cup, despite having given it to the United States the year prior, um, and and not without um, uh, a, a past example or two, right? I mean, uh, Colombia uh, was supposed to host uh, the um, 1986 World Cup and uh, uh, was unable to fulfill, I guess, its obligations, and it got relocated to Mexico. United States was up for that too. But I digress. There's so many nooks and crannies to these, let's call them the lost years, certainly in the, the mid to late 1980s, um, but but in a fascinating arc. And if you're new to kind of the pro game or, or you're uh, a modern day or younger fan, say of, of a team or even the league of, of MLS, um, and, and you ever sort of scratch your head and wonder where these names like Portland Timbers came from or Seattle Sounders or San Jose Earthquakes and this NASL thing that you may hear some of the old timers in the stands uh, remember or talk about or regale, or maybe you see a couple of clips on YouTube. Um, th th this conversation with Hal and this book are probably your two best compliments to um, encapsulate, I don't know, maybe the last uh, 30 plus years of 
the history of this game in the United States, largely through the professional lens and and all the various pieces of that tableau as to why it's taken so long for the U.S. to get to it, the level it's at now, how much further it really has to go. Um, the, the pro game and and the availability of the pro game worldwide um, in this country now, relative to where we were 20, 30 years ago, all of that and more is part of this fascinating conversation and this most excellent book. Again, it's called Generation Zero. We'll if you stay tuned during the course of the show, not only will we tell you how to get it, but uh, if you listen carefully during one of the breaks, uh, we're going to give away two copies. Yes, two copies of this book. It's about almost 500 pages long, and it's every word is great. It's, uh, it's it will keep you. Uh, it's it's it, it it goes like that. It's not it's not uh, pedantic. It's not dense. It's it's but it's it's rich in stories. It's very well written. Um, we're going to have a, a trivia question. And uh, if you can answer that trivia question, be one of the first ones uh, to email us an answer after you hear the uh, the question when you listen to the show, we're going to send you a copy of the book, um, courtesy of Hal Phillips and uh, uh, and uh, his publisher. So stay tuned. This is a great conversation. And if you're if you're a soccer fan and you know or think you know most of this story and the dark times and the uh, the, the good times and everything in between. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure you're going to learn a couple of pieces of information uh, from not only this conversation, but certainly the book. If you are relatively new to the soccer in the United States professionally story, uh, you will absolutely be interested, intrigued, and piqued uh, enough probably to go further, not only in this conversation, but get the book. Um, and um, we hope that uh, you will enjoy this as much uh, as I and Hal had uh, a time of uh, just a few ba- days back uh, reminiscing um, about our love for the game mutually, how we both stumbled into the game and uh, what it's all mean, the, the, what it's all meant, frankly, the, the long and winding road, shall we say. Um, all coming up. Uh, stay tuned. You will enjoy it. Let's get a, a, a quick promotional thing out of the way. Um, let's see. How about why don't we celebrate uh, the just uh, let's find a great place where one could regale in the literally dozens of former teams that made up leagues like the North American Soccer League and the American Soccer League and in uh, the indoor realm, the AISA and the uh, major indoor soccer league uh, and all kinds of other sports for that matter, but certainly in the realm of soccer. Let's go to oldschoolshirts.com. We love them. They're in Cincinnati. Uh, and yeah, there are a couple of Cincinnati teams that sort of made an appearance there. The Cincinnati Comets of the American Soccer League. You get a shirt devoted to them from the early 70s. Perhaps the Cincinnati Kids, the one-year wonder of the MISL uh, from 1978. Uh, but if you want uh, just great, no-nonsense and well-crafted, uh, uh, mostly original logoed uh, memory shirts of uh, all the great teams of the past, uh, uh, certainly the NASL and, and others, and the MISL, uh, they're all there for you. You want the Washington Diplomats? Boom, got them. California Surf, you got it. Uh, do you remember the St. Louis Stars? Yes. Uh, the Cosmos, of course, are, are uh, emblazoned with uh, their three uh, three-time championship logo. They had some others. The Philadelphia Fury, remember the Minnesota Kicks? Um, how about even that NASL <laughs> classic shirt, soccer, the sport of the 80s? Yes, that was a a shirt and a and a um, an insignia that was out there in 1980 and 1981, uh, as the league was convinced 
that uh, it was literally at the precipice of going to the moon. Uh, little did they know that it was actually the beginning of the end of that league. And, and that shirt is probably the best uh, uh, encapsulation, if you will. If you're going to wear any shirt uh, while listening to this episode, get the to oldschoolshirts.com and just search up the soccer, the sport of the 80s shirt, and you'll see what I mean. And of course, while you're looking at that shirt and contemplating buying 10 or 20 of them, or anything else for that matter on oldschoolshirts.com, by all means, please, courtesy of us and our pal P.F. Wilson and team in Cincinnati, Ohio, a promo code for you to save 10% off all of your purchases. And of course, that code is good seats. Good seats. 10% off all of your purchases. Oldschoolshirts.com. Fantastic stuff. You know it. You love it. More stuff all the time. Bookmark it and uh, visit them and buy from them, as they say, early and often. Thanks for the sponsorship of today's show, OldSchoolShirts.com. We appreciate it. And now let's waste no more time. Here is a wonderful, very in-depth, altogether uh, uh, enjoyable conversation, uh, as well as the book. Let's talk about the soccer sojourn, shall we say, of the United States from the late 60s, the 1970s, the crazy uh, up and down and further down and even at all the way bottom, 1980s, and then the resurrection, shall we say, by the end of that decade. Here's our conversation with the great Hal Phillips, our new pal. Please, as always, enjoy. As many listeners to this show and uh, remember or have heard me say over uh, and over again, perhaps to a to a fault that for me growing up in northern New Jersey in the mid to late 1970s, early 1980s, and as a player of soccer in one of these, as you call them, hotbeds uh, in northern New Jersey, uh, fairly rare at the time. Who did I have in, you know, literally 11 miles away from my home? Well, the, the mighty New York Cosmos and this. North American Soccer League thing. So that just sort of was my entry point into um, a world of soccer fandom. And and I, you know, literally, I found myself reading this book, and I, I admittedly, I'm only three quarters of the way through, um, almost in lockstep, I think from an age perspective, as well as sort of a an up and down and sideways um, uh, perspective about, you know, as things happen, uh, to this sport that I somehow became affixed to, um, the uh, uh, the the uh, it's been a roller coaster. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, wait, Tim, how old are you? I am fifty six, and I think we're kind of very close in that sort of cohort. Um, Absolutely. So, but but that's interesting to hear you talk about um, the fascination with the moving franchises and franchises that go away because without NASL, we would not have really had that experience because major sports in America just didn't do that sort of thing. Um, it took the, the world football league and, and the NASL and these sort of more fly by night operations to show us how fragile it all could be. Well, yeah. And, um, and there's also, I, I guess we could sort of get into it, but I, I, this is, um, it also uh, it was very interesting because you had a you had benchmarks right as a as a kid you you know you knew what the big four or three and a half sports were right you you knew you know the the pecking order in one's you know middle school or or high school kind of 
regimen and you know you knew the types of kids that were attracted to such and as you outline in this book and i want to give it away but it's 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 great you touch on so many different things it was kind of an outlier the soccer thing right it's still kind of foreign and and not sort of mainstream in the u.s and again luckily having grown up in an area that was earlier on the curve on the youth level than frankly most um and then having the embarrassment of riches literally next door to -hmm. see the greatest players in the world but yeah i mean to your point you know it's um it was less than when it came to the nightly news coverage in the local television markets and stuff or or worse or uh, or more pronounced in uh, quote unquote television uh, broadcast of the games. Again, we were sort of as Cosmos fans, um, you know, embarrassed by the riches of uh, Burt Sugarman and, and Channel Nine. And prior to that, the Mizlu Television Network broadcasting all the games. I mean. You know, if you were in another market, you maybe got a handful of them. And, you know, the coverage of the local media was, you know, uh, rare or or decent or somewhere in between those things and, and hardly front page on a regular basis. Tough market. Um, now, wh- where are you from in north North New Jersey? Because I, I used to live in Montclair. OK, so I grew up in a town called Hohokus, which oh. is near Ridgewood Saddle River. Right. So. That's, you know, the same county as uh, the uh, beloved and uh, well, not as beloved anymore, Giant Stadium, where the Cosmos really, you know, gained uh, ascendance in 1977 and beyond. But I digress. Let me let me get let's just for our audience who haven't had the pleasure of delving into this book yet. I, um, we've had a ton of different conversations with various folks in the realms of let's call it American soccer Um indoors, outdoors, and everything in between. And I think the best parallel, perhaps, is, was a conversation we had back in 2018 um, with the author, uh, Michael Agavino, uh, who wrote the book Dark Ages. I don't know if you've read that, but um, it, it, it is, um, uh, it's is—it's got a, 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 a picture of uh, a game from the uh, sold-out Giants Stadium uh, on the cover. And it really is, it's a personal memoir of you know, coming of age in the New York area and stuff and falling in love with this soccer thing, the foreignness of it all, the arrival of it all as, a, as, a, as an American thing and all those kinds of things and the ups and downs and the disappointments and the, frankly, the abandonment come 1980s, mid 1980s or so. How do you come to this story generally as a player, as a fan, as an observer of things, your career? I mean, what's your adjunct to all this to begin with? Well, just going back um, to what you were talking about, the 70s in New York, you know, before I moved to Boston as an eight-year-old in 1973, I'd never played soccer. I had no contact with it. And in fact, when I showed up in Upper Montclair, New Jersey in 1970, um, it was an amazing time to sort of just, you know, be old enough to understand, you know, who Joe Willie Namath was, who the Mets were. Um, Channel 11 for the Yankees, Channel 9 for the Mets. Um, it was an amazing t- The Knicks, you know, won, a, won an NBA title um, at two of them. I mean, it was an amazing time to be in the Met area. Um, and then I moved to Boston. And when I moved to Boston, there were, there was soccer was everywhere already. I mean, there were, ta- there were leagues all over my town of Wellesley, which is a suburb of Boston, right on the marathon route. So yeah, I'd never played it or heard of it before, really, until I got there. Um, but when I did, it was everywhere. And so that was my contact with it. And I had the good fortune of landing in this, this hotbed of, of soccer. And the Minutemen were there and NASL was there. And we got swept up in it as, 
many kids did. I, my theory is that certain number of kids in the 70s were attracted to outlying things in a way they were attracted to outlying things during the 60s. It was a, there was a lot of rebellion going on and it was, it was sort of tailor-made, NASL was, for people who were bucking the status quo. And um, I think that's how I got looped into it to start with. So, I mean, in Boston, though, you're probably describing, as as I remember some of the uh, of your your writing in this, uh, is sort of I guess because it Boston and maybe in my case New York or the suburbs of such is just such a natural and historical over the the decades, say post World War II, maybe even prior to that, such a, a melting pot of ethnicities that uh, naturally brought the sport of football slash soccer to those areas because those were kind of some of the first places that. You know, en masse, uh, uh, folks from the European region in particular wound up domiciling and, and bringing some of their, you know, their uh, home loved things, including a sport known as soccer. Yeah, I think that um, Generation Zero is a story about generations and it's a story about demographics. Um, I think we all understand that soccer has been around in this country for 100 years or had been, you know, around for 100 years, starting in 1970. But it never came to much. We know that too. What changed um, starting in the 70s was this massive um, shift of people from urban centers to suburban centers. Now that started in the 50s with Levittown, but it, it continued throughout the 60s and the 70s so that places like Wellesley, places like Hohokus, all of a sudden had all sorts of people who knew this game and wanted to set up youth soccer leagues like they had back in the city in these suburbs. So I think this is really a suburban book. It's a suburban story, soccer in America. It didn't really go anywhere until soccer got there. And when it did, it finally sort of reached a critical mass of people. And, uh, you know, I think that that's one of the things that I always have to ask people how old they are, because if you're 56, like you are, Tim, you remember growing up in a largely soccer indifferent culture. Um, And that's what really brought me to the subject I remember that I played soccer, but I knew the score. I knew that it was an outlying thing that people were um, less than curious about it. They were actually sort of fearful of it. It was foreign. It was other, it was immigrant. It was urban. Um, But I look around today and I see soccer has made it. It's everywhere. Um, So that's why I wanted to write this book. Nothing seemed to happen about soccer, you know, soccer's progress until 1970. And then, geez, it looked really bad in the middle of the 80s. And all of a sudden, here we are. It's 2022, and the game is everywhere. It's on television everywhere. Um, Americans are owning iconic clubs in Europe. All of our players are playing overseas. I mean, it's really extraordinary what's happened. And it's, you know, my book pins it on a particular generation of people, all of whom came of age, you know, with the game in the 70s and came of age as players and fans in the 80s. No, it is a great read. And and it's it's just it's for anybody who even comes close to sort of fitting uh, either their youth or their awareness of sports in those two decades of the 70s and 80s, sort of know what wasn't what then seemingly overnight was and then almost as quickly was not again in a span <laughs> of 15 to 20 years. Uh, and and just know how that sort of thrashing. I mean, look, I, I could go. So a couple of examples, right? So number one, you know, as a red blooded American, you know, kid sports fan, right? You know, I, I loved getting Sports Illustrated, right? And not just for the swimsuit issues, by the way, but of course, who who didn't in in early February? But I digress. Um, 
I, I got rid of my subscription in 19, 1980 uh, because they didn't cover enough soccer in my mind, right? They, maybe there's a Giorgio Canaglia on the cover one year and Pele in 75. That was kind of it. I mean, you really had to like, and, and I knew it was a thing, right? I saw it in the for the record section, right? Which is the agate uh, back then of the columns and stuff. And I knew, you know, the coverage of the Cosmos and stuff, but it, I knew it was more than just a passing thing. And I, it, it was clear that a, that a national publication like a Sports Illustrated was, I guess, indifferent, if, if not worse, to the sport. Another example, right? So, you know, I remember vividly, fast forward to uh, World Cup qualification uh, for the 86, um, uh, then, well, it became the Mexican uh, part two, right? It was supposed to be in Colombia. So right. I remember... Um, uh, no, sorry. This is for the. This is in, in, I'm sorry. This is in, for in prep for the '82, the uh, Espana one. Uh, I guess this was '81 when we were qualifying. I, I remember watching some qualification matches on what was it? I guess it was called the SENA, the, 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 the Spanish International Broadcasting Network, or Tony Toronto, wow. in very broken English. Right? I mean, he he would he would say something in English like once an hour, and it was a very broken sentence. But at least I knew you could wink and nod that there were a few American fans there through the hash of, of a UHF signal, right? And <laughs> sitting aside on, on you know, at my <laughs> house for a Thanksgiving meal, I, you know, not so elegantly said, I got to watch this Channel 47 thing <laughs> and see if this US team, this national team is going to qualify for something called the World Cup. And, you know, disappointed uh, again, right? And I, I felt like I was literally the only person, Anglo-speaking, white, American male of, 12, 13 years old who knew what the hell was going on with this. And I had nobody else to talk to about it. Um, <laughs> but so to me, right. And so that's why I like to the story. And, and I think the depth and the, and the, the, the flourish that you write about it with um, just resonates with me. And I just, I'm fascinated to see how many other people sort of come out from the shadows, shall we say, uh, and, and embrace some aspect of this, let's call it the 20 years between what kind of started it in, in a fitful way and ultimately sort of landed at the table into World Cup qualification and a league to come from it. Well, it's interesting because here we are in 2022 and soccer is part of the mainstream. And um, looking back, when people try to answer that question, when did things really turn? When did the switch get flipped? I think most people talk about 1994 because we had the World Cup here. And two years later, MLS launched and well logically that was it that was the, the 94 world cup that's the answer well it, it's not i mean there were 20 years that that were required required to build to that point and there's a there's a relationship between the success of professional soccer in this country the success of grassroots soccer in this country and our ability to participate in the biggest party in soccer the world cup and i think everyone who was attached to the U.S. Soccer Federation forever, um, but particularly starting in the NASL era in 1967, they said, we have to get in on this World Cup thing. Without it, we're never going to reach Americans in the numbers that we want. We're never going to mainstream this sport. And as fun as NASL was, we never managed to produce enough players to create a national team that could qualify for the World Cup until 1990. Um, that is what flipped the switch. And that is what this book is about. We follow the, the cohort of elite players that did qualify us for a World Cup finally 
But the thing about the 70s was you and me and millions of other kids started playing the game um, in the early 1970s during the first Nixon administration, I've said many times. Um, and those people still grew up and, and loved the game. And they were there in 1990, ready to support soccer when we did qualify. But until we did qualify for a World Cup, the game was not going anywhere here. It really required that. It's, it's that black and white um, in, my, in my view. And, you know, <laughs> that, that glosses over a lot of fun stuff that happened in the 80s when things went pear-shaped. But um, until we qualify for a World Cup, no one was going to take it seriously here and the rest of the world wasn't going to take us seriously. So many threads to this story. Let we'll, me we'll try to get to a few of them, but, but sure, let's, sure. let's stick with one of them, though, which is that sort of uh, at least at certain levels of the sport, uh, administrative and or otherwise, sort of this recognition that um, whatever happens in this country needs to ultimately at some point align with and or commingle with the quote unquote world game in particular the grandest uh, of all those stages, the World Cup. Now, it's dripping with irony, right? Because without, um, uh, let's say, without the uh, 1970 World Cup, right, there may not have been any New York Cosmos, right? I mean, Ahmet Erdogan and his brother Neswi, right, you know, of Turkish descent and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the ma major domos of Atlantic Records at the time and, 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 and the budding Warner Communications, had it not been for a meeting between them and Phil Woosnam and then Steve Ross being entertained at that, that match. And then the conversations that came out of that, there would not be this admittedly uh, fledgling something in 1971 that ultimately became, you know, what this world brand that still resonates today. Um, or you fast forward to stuff like um, you know, 1986 uh, that world cup, when it was decided that Columbia couldn't handle it. Um, it's my understanding that the NASL, and I think you talk about this in the book, um, you know, was was kind of recognizing that that there was almost an air of desperation. If we don't somehow get a shot at that that game, or maybe it was the 82 Cup, I'm not sure. I think it was the 86 one. Um, what a better way to boost a sagging morale and league than by getting the, the world's biggest prize. And we didn't get it for right. a number of different reasons. Right. So, you know, the mind wanders as to like what would have happened had we not had to wait till, I don't know, when do we get an award, 1989 or so, um, until, you know, what would have happened in 86 had had, they, had the World Cup happened in 96? We might not have had this deeply fallow and, and despondent period of time that, you know, just ultimately was, it seemed like it was doomed. No, that's true. I mean, there were some great near misses and what ifs I mean, that period. The first one, I think, is um, the U.S. almost did qualify for the World Cup in 1969 that, that too, for sure they almost did and, and they they sort of blew it they had a chance to advance to the final stage of qualifying and they couldn't beat haiti in a home and home bob gansler the coach of the 1990 team was you know a player on that team um it uh, uh but they you know they didn't make it they they didn't they, they couldn't beat haiti uh, um, at home so um there's one I, I think that if i think that if there's one thing if you talk to federation people going back 50 years, they say, if we could have qualified for the 1970 World Cup in Mexico, where Pele was ascendant, that iconic event, and we had televised it um, here in the States in a dedicated way because there was a U.S. team there competing, would have changed everything. Um, that's one. Um, the Cosmos, you know, it's, I don't think people even recognize that the Cosmos weren't an original NASL team because I think in 1969, there were only four 
it, the play, the league almost went under in yep. 1969. And um, they actually, I, I didn't know this until oh, very late in, in the research process. The, the Rochester Lancers were pulled in from the old American soccer league, the second division to come up and fill out, I think, and make a fifth team. There were only five teams in NASL for the 1969 season. That's how bad it got. And, and Bob Gansler is very frank. He's like, that's the reason we lost to Haiti. I mean, our league was going under. We, we went from 22 teams to five. And the Cosmos were born out of that crisis um, that followed. But think how weak, you know, American soccer really was at that point. NASL had five teams. They pulled the Lancers up from the ASL in 1969. They win the league in 1970. So it just shows you how fragile the whole thing was. Um, but yeah, so many near misses. Um, the Torrance um, debacle in 1985, they, you know, NSL has already folded, but um, all we have to do is beat Costa Rica and we're through to final qualifying for Mexico 86. And there were a lot of people who were saying, hey, if we can qualify for this World Cup, it's in Mexico, we can restart a new league. We will get NBC is already planning to televise games. So is ESPN. We need an American team there. Mexico has already qualified. We don't have to play them and they couldn't beat Costa Rica. So yeah, a lot of near misses. And well, uh, but the, the 1980 were... Olympic team too, could have been a, a, a shot in the arm and that obviously they were ready to go until <laughs> Jimmy Carter pulled the plug to, to boycott the Olympics in Moscow. Are you aware at just how dodgy our, our qualification was for the 1980 Olympics? Yeah, you, you talk about it in the book, but you can you want to give a little thumbnail of it. It was pretty. It was, I'll try to thumbnail it's like it. By whatever means necessary, right? But still, it's in there, this, right? This was a team, you know, stocked full of NASL players. And we should really talk about sort of the misunder the, the fallacies attached to what NASL really did for American soccer. But a um, bunch of NASL veterans, Ty Keogh, you know, who people might recognize from TV, was on this team. Um, they basically lose to Mexico and um, are out, but then they say, oh, Mexico used a bunch of professional players and the Mexicans are banned from the 80 Olympics and we go in their place. So then, you know, that's, that's a big deal. We hadn't been since 1972 and before then, God knows how long it had been. So that was good. Then Jimmy Carter pulls the plug. So the, the, the capper on that story is, only a matter of months later, we end up playing the Mexicans and the Canadians to qualify for the Spanish World Cup in 1982. And the Mexicans are pissed. And they, um, they drubbed us down into Mexico City five to one. And that ended that qualification campaign. So it was really just one, you know, out of the fire into the frying pan for that group of players. They, they thought they were good enough, but they clearly were not. All right. Well, here, here's another thread I want to get to, and this will sort of get us into NASL history and, and its legacies and its uh, contributions or lack thereof. Um, I, I love how you frame um, uh, the arrival of the two somewhat hastily composed uh, professional leagues in 1967. And I believe actually, it, depending on what soccer historian talked to, there was actually a third one that kind of was sort of floating around as well, but they were all hellbent coming out of 1966's a coverage of the final game on NBC, which was, I guess, live or relatively live. And Not was, live, but the first full game that's ever been shown on game. There you go, right? And everybody like just had dollar signs in their eyes or whatever. But I loved how you framed it because you you actually frame it in generational terms as as to how those two then becoming one league by 68 were not really, shall we say, created for 
uh, the generation, the younger generation, but but something more, I guess, classic and traditional and trying to be shoehorned, if you will, into, uh, I guess, what would be called professional sports back in the late 60s. And it, it clearly didn't work and pretty quickly, uh, maybe for that reason or partially because. Yeah, I think that's a big part of soccer's modern history is that NASL itself was was not aimed at you or me, Tim. They weren't, it wasn't aimed at all those kids playing youth soccer in those suburbs across the nation in the early 70s. They they became they came to love it, but they they formed NASL because they wanted to get, you know, business from baby boomers who were coming of age. Um, many of them, you know, born in the late, in the late 40s were already, um, you know, free spending consumerists of uh, the highest quality. And I think I said something, you know, what sports promoter wouldn't, you wouldn't pimp their, their league toward that cohort. This is the largest, richest, um, most um, rebellious and outlying generation of the 20th century to that point. So this made perfect sense. Of course, these people are going to dump or maybe they'll, you know, they won't dump American football, but maybe they'll make room for soccer. They've been rebelling in all these other ways. Well, as it turns out, baby boomers wanted um, very little to do with soccer and all these traditional sports, football, basketball, um, baseball and the NHL expanded enormously in the 1970s on the strength of the boomers supporting them. So, again, another generational aspect of the story. Um, I'm a Gen X um, member, as you are, and we've lived our whole lives sort of picking the scraps off the bone um, left by uh, baby boomers. They run this culture and did for a long time, um, but they sort of left NASL for dead, in my view. They supported it a little bit, and then yeah, they got tired of it, moved on, and um, we weren't old enough to buy enough tickets, Tim, to keep it alive. Well, let's fast forward to 75, I think it was, or was it 70, 75, I think it was. So I, I want to talk a little bit about your sort of personal, um, I don't know, uh, awareness or lightning bolt, I guess, of what this then fledgling, but that by that time, certainly rooted now and, and certainly growing uh, North American Soccer League. Um, do you want to describe a little bit about what the Boston Minutemen were and the dynamic of it. And, and I, I literally just spent vacation in Cape Cod in Boston and drove by uh, this facility that's still there where you saw that game. Um, you want to kind of maybe give our audience a little bit of a sense of uh, how and why you found yourself at, uh, at BU's uh, a little nest of a stadium there watching this crazy foreign match with this guy named Pele against their, your quote unquote hometown Boston Minutemen. Well, I guess I was 10 and um, I was on my first ever travel team. So um, everyone in my town played soccer. I, I moved there a year or two before and we played soccer every day at recess. And I mean, everyone was into it. We wore our uniforms all over the place to school and whatnot. And we, my dad got tickets to this game. It was the Cosmos Pele was coming to town and we knew enough to know this was a huge deal. And God bless my dad for getting those tickets. He took my friend, Tom and Dave, Doganian and we went to this game and you know you're 10 years old and you're in this massive crowd and it was just a a, a thrill but this was a famous game where Pele scored the, the the tying goal in about the 75th minute and you know the crowd rushes the field and sort of mauls him and they just barely get him out of there they tore his shirt and took his shorts and he, they, he came off the field and they had about stretchers <laughs> sort of scary 
Um, and then the game went on and um, I had to go back and check the archive to remember exactly how it ended because, you know, you don't remember anything like that when you're 10. But it was just a thrill to be in the middle of something that was obviously so important to so many people. I'd been to Red Sox games, but no one ever run on this, runs on the field there. I'd been to Patriots games. You know, the game's not interrupted because people are so spasmodic and in exultation about a goal. It was really a, a very, it made a big impression on me. Um, but I think it made an impression on anybody who was that age, um, you know, seeing something a little dangerous, um, a little outlying. Um, but obviously, 20,000 people are there with you. You're not alone. I think it did help put a, a little toehold in my life about, you know, the game and what it meant. So from that toehold, um, walk us to the journey of sort of uh, your, I guess, level of like, so what did you do? Did you start following the team? Did you start reading the newspapers? Was it a curiosity that sort of came and went? And maybe when the team end came back in town a couple of years later, you sort of reignited, I mean, like, or, or, or is it kindling for something? Cause obviously you were playing and you'd yeah. gotten a taste of what this quote unquote pro game was with all its, <laughs> let's call it idiosyncrasies in the United States. Um, were you hooked, uh, would you, were you just looking for more? Did you go to more games or was it kind of just, just another event in sort of one's childhood that just stuck with you over time? Well, I was hooked, but I'm a, I'm a sports writer by trade and I'm a sports fiend. Generally. I love all sports. Um, we went to, you know, Fenway, we went to Patriots games. We loved the Bruins. We loved it all. Um, but we played and we played all these sports, but soccer was um, a big sport in my town. And that's what we played literally every day at recess at the Honeywell School in the fourth grade. So we played in junior high school, we played in high school, but I mean, the, you know, I, I'm trying to synthesize it here, but the, the generation of kids that grew up with me in the place where we all lived, um, soccer mattered. And we played other sports, you know, we, but soccer was something that we knew was new and important and specific to us. We knew that older kids didn't play it. So yeah, we, we took to it in a new way and we were good. Uh, I got hooked up with a, a club team when I was 10 that played together until we were 19 years old and we won state championships. We won the state McGuire cup you know, under 19 state championship and went pretty far in that tournament. Um, but I think the, the conceit of this book is we follow the 1990 U.S. men's national team from the early 70s through to the World Cup in um, Italy in 1990. And the conceit of the book is these guys are exactly our age, Tim. They grew up with the same exact influences as we did. And you know, they're just, you know, their story is writ larger and more successfully than ours. I played in college. I played some semi-pro after college, but that's not the point. The point is that by growing up with the game of soccer, I became a fan of soccer for life. I'm a soccer native, and this is not a process that should be unfamiliar to us. This is why, you know, 50-something men still um, muse about their days playing Little League and high school football when you play a game as a yeah, kid, glory days bruce springsteen right right it, when you play a game as a kid it 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 does something to you um it becomes part of you um and that's something that we recognize as natural in other sports the the story of generation zero is soccer never had that 
opportunity until the 1970s. The youth soccer gen you know, revolution of the 1970s across suburban areas in this country from coast to coast ex exposed the game to kids. They played it as kids for the first time, boys and girls, importantly. And, you know, what happens? Well, we finally get a critical mass of millions playing the game, and we finally produce 20 world-class players who can qualify us, qualify us for a World Cup in 1990. And, oh, by the way, when they do it, there's a ready-made um, population of soccer-loving fans already in place. So my story in the book is sort of a straw man story. I'm the normal kid. I'm, I'm the kid who's not going to ever play for the national team, but I played as I played all my life. And so when the worm finally turned in 1990, I was ready to support them. I was ready to follow MLS. I was ready to go to multiple games at the 94 World Cup. And, um, you know, this is what sports fans do, but you got to get them when you're when they're young. And we finally did. Yeah, the irony with that, though, of course, and it, which is an, yet another thread of the of this book, which is multi-threaded and, and thus stronger and brilliant by by, by as such, uh, is that you use a few of the uh, the players that became part of that uh, process of of ultimately qualifying by the end of the eighties, uh, who were fans uh, growing up as kids of this North American Soccer League thing, in particular. Uh, three out of Carney, you know, like Tab Ramos and John Harks and Tony Miola. And, and literally just at the, at the moment or the time that as they were growing up and playing and, and, and excelling at this still relatively non-mainstream sport, the league collapses. They, they have literally nowhere to go just as they might be in the, the running to be drafted and or potentially go and play for a team in the professional league all of a sudden circa 1984, it's gone. Talk about like a smack in the face. And, you know, one having to, I, I guess the point is, it's really interesting that that a whole bunch of those fans sitting in those seats with us were players, uh, for, for current, uh, then players as well as future stars. And they were almost kind of banking on, on having a place to go when they graduated high school or even college. And I think that's the lesson. I think people um, say, oh, yeah, NASL got this, got America ready to qualify for the World Cup and be a first world soccer nation. And that's just not true. And, and in a lot of ways, NASL held back development of soccer players in this country. And that's a sort of wonky developmental conversation that we can have. But you are correct that when this particular golden generation of talent finally graduated from college or turned 20 years old, they're, you know, and ready to join a professional league, NASL goes away. And, and yet that group of players still was able to qualify for the world cup in, in, in 1990. And Oh, by the way, six of those guys started on the 94 team. This was a true golden generation of talent. And it's a, it's a weird thing that, that I don't think the players themselves even grasp. You know, I did talk to, a dozen guys from that team. There are probably 15 who played, you know, actual minutes. And I, and I talked to a dozen of them plus games or plus dozens more um, contemporary players and coaches and not all of them, but a few of them said things to me like, yeah, you would have thought that, um, uh, that the national team in 1985 would have qualified for Mexico because they all, they had NASL. They, they all played in NASL up until 1984, the fall. They were under the impression that NASL prepared them to be the best soccer players they can be. 
but one of the theories or the theses in my book is it really didn't. Um, the NASL had a quota system that 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 required teams to play two North Americans on the field at all times, and that that rule um, moved to three players in 1980. Um, but what did that do? Well, it made a team play Americans um, where maybe they weren't good enough, so they'd stick them at left back. The goalies were all Americans. Um, no Americans were playing in the middle of the park for NASL teams, and you don't develop players like that. You don't develop good, creative, playmaking um, soccer players and scorers if you're sticking them off to the side um, for years at a time uh, to fulfill a quota. So when NASL actually went away, yeah, there was no professional first division in this country, but at least Americans were playing all the skill positions and developing in a way they hadn't. Yeah, well, look, you're also hinting at, at, at something else that was sort of going on with the pro game in this country at that time, which is sort of this uh, latent or in some cases even open hostility between the quote unquote U.S. powers that be and the international uh, realm of FIFA, right? I mean, it's dating all the way back to the point system and the 35 yard line experiment and and shootouts and all that kind of stuff. By the way, I mean, separate <laughs> conversation. Some of those innovations could actually be resurrected in my mind to maybe spice up some of the game, like uh, the point system to me, I think to encourage more, more goal scoring, but I, I digress. Um, you know, I, it almost felt in some cases almost hostile. I mean, I, you think back, I'm trying to think back now, childhood in these games and in the, in those, those years didn't hear a lot of uh, discussion or commingling of the international game or the world cup for that matter. And you mentioned how difficult it was to watch the friggin' 1978 uh, uh, World Cup. As a matter of fact, I think I remember seeing some of those games uh, in closed circuit in the felt form in, in New York. And I think in Spanish on channel 47 or 41 in New York, that was it. Right. Yeah. Um, but I guess the point is it, there was no, I mean, there certainly wasn't any U.S. Open Cup, but there was no overlap. There was no sort of U.S. national team support. And we might've heard that a Ricky Davis was on the team, but we didn't know what the team was. And you know, it's like there was no joint sort of uh, shoulder uh, building on top of to to kind of promote that kind of stuff at all. And I think by the time 82 and 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 beyond kind of arrived and the, the league was going wobbly, um, it was kind of a little too late to kind of start to grasp at the straw of possibly getting the 86 World Cup and save save the the enterprise. Yeah, they, they, they actually did bid for that. And um, uh, it was sort of laughed out of the room. Unfortunately, it was a um, um, pretty naive um, effort, according to <laughs> the people who um, spearheaded that effort. It's fascinating to me, though, Tim, and this is one of the things that ed you know, edified in my brain um, in the putting together of this book, was just how domestic um, our view is in this country of sports. It's very insular. And, you know, up until 1990, and this is sort of an important point, you know, with regard to soccer, but sports in America generally, we had no interest in team sports played internationally. There were the Olympics. People love the Olympics here. And, you know, the U.S. hockey team slayed the Russians in 1980. We made a big deal over that. But, you know, the NBA didn't send um, its, you know, professional players to Olympics or world championships until the 90s. Um, Americans had very little interest in or understanding of the international country versus country dynamic. We just didn't participate in it. All of our biggest sports are completely self-contained. 
you know, no one plays football outside of this country. We call it the World Series of Baseball, but, you know, we don't play the Japanese champion. We just stop the season and they're the world champions. So this idea that you would take the best players from American sports, create an all-star team and play the best players from, a, you know, another country in that sport, we didn't even get it. I, I remember talking to Jim Trecker, who's a, a famous soccer writer. Yeah, for, um, former guest of ours, for sure. Great guy. And um, he, he put it best. He said, you know, in 1986, people didn't even understand. 1986, mind you, didn't even understand that, that you could, that, that Maradona could be on the, a club team called Napoli, but also compete for Argentina in the World Cup. And I, and I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, people didn't get it. And I'm like, I guess, I guess they didn't. Why would they? There's no, there was no world baseball classic. Um, the NBA player, there was no dream team. I mean, think about the dream team as a member that in 1990, I think it was announced in February, 1990, right before the Italian world cup, that the Americans would be sending NBA players to the, to the Spain Olympic games, Barcelona. Remember what a huge deal that was? Yeah. You'd think they'd invented the concept. I know. And, and it was like this, it's like the dream team. I'm like every national team in the world in team handball or basketball or soccer, those are all dream teams, but it was this big deal in this country that shows you just sort of the, how hard it was for Americans to get their head around, not just international soccer, but international anything. And um, that late eighties, early nineties period was really important for the development of this idea the dream team obviously was the best example, but the 1990 um, men's national team and the, the growth of soccer and the national team was another. Um, remember the America's Cup races that were that were held in the late 80s and on ESPN and they pulled all sorts of great numbers. I'm convinced that was another example where ESPN was like, wow, people I think people really care about this. You know, it's an American and who cares about sailing. But if we can package this idea of America versus Australia people will respond and they did. Of course, people respond to that all over the world, but it was just something that was new to the American sports ethos. Well, that the, yet another thread of your book, right? Is this, uh, is this uh, uh, evolution of, or, or um, yeah, evolution, I would say of this uh, American exceptionalism, right? At least as applied to sports in particular to soccer, right. um, which wasn't just a pro U.S. versus FIFA international thing, as you just outlined, but but also at the grassroots level, right? I mean, you you give loving yet sort of backhanded praise uh, to the soccer dads, right? In in these years, uh, of which I still have one. God God bless. Um, and and his best friend today was my soccer coach when I was in second and third grade, right? His old volunteer thing. Did he know what he was doing? Yeah. Well, look, I, yeah. I mean, he's, uh, they're both retired. Right. But, but I, you know, I still remember very fondly and warmly, I mean, without, frankly, the, the efforts of him coaching those couple of years when I was a kid growing up, I, that instilled in me a real interest in the game that I think, frankly, you could point back to maybe the, the origin of why I would be even interested in a Cosmos game circa 77. Right. I, you know that, but that exceptionalism I think is interesting because, you know, the U S didn't have a plethora of, you know, uh, generations of, of, of talent and teachers and, and uh, you know, and coaches and that kind of stuff. We had to rely on the, the Gatorade and orange wedge brigades that, you know, for whatever reason, they, they met well, they were e equally intrigued, but did they know what they were doing? Not really. 
No, I, I you know, I think that I, I don't want to pick on them um, because they did, you know, that, that part of that is quite um, typical. I mean, um, when you play little league baseball, you know, you don't bring in professional coaches. Some dad does it or, um, and, but you know, every dad in America knows baseball because they played it as kids. Every dad in America knows basketball because they played it as kids in 1975. There weren't any dads that were not very many that knew the game because they hadn't played it as kids. So that is a really a huge part of it, but the, the exceptionalism is, is a big part of it. And I think NASL is a classic example of, um, you know, they said, look, we're going to do it our way. We're going to play it in the, in the summer and we're going to not line it up with the rest of the world soccer calendar. And it won't bother us. It did. It, it held back American soccer in huge ways. We're going to play on turf, even though FIFA doesn't allow us to play on turf, you know, international games that hurt us. Um, that there were all sorts of examples of things. The best one is the academy system that, all of Europe and South America and the modern football world used to create players. We didn't have an academy system here. And we didn't have one until 2012. Um, in, in the early 80s, when Generation Zero was coming of age, when I was coming of age, what was the ideal? It was the three sport athlete. You know, you played football in the, in the fall or and basketball in the winter and baseball in the spring. Well, even if you sub in soccer for football in the fall, you're still only spending four months of the year playing this game everywhere else in the world. If you're really a prospect, you're playing it every day, all year long. We know that now, but American had, you know, and, and we didn't think there was anything weird about that because we were told, and it seemed to us that, that America produced the finest athletes in the world. The, the, the three sport ideal really works. Well, it doesn't. It, it really is hard for, to, to make world-class soccer players unless they're playing all the time. And now we see how it's working. Now we see everyone's, you know, started out in an academy and now we have 500 players playing in Europe for top clubs. That's how you create them. But this idea that we're Americans and we're rich and powerful so we can do things our own way and still be super um, successful. Well, it doesn't always work out that way. All right, a quick respite to uh, do a little promotion, shall we? You've heard me gush about this book uh, that Hal is uh, uh, drawing all these stories from, and we've got plenty more to come uh, in the back half of uh, this episode. Again, it's called Generation Zero, Founding Fathers, Hidden Histories, and the Making of Soccer in America. Uh, it is published by uh, the good people at Dickinson Moses Press, and Hal and uh, the publisher have uh, graciously given us two copies to... Uh, promotionally give away uh, to you, the fine and great listeners of uh, this here little show. Uh, so all you have to do, if you would like to win a copy of this book, Generation Zero from Hal Phillips, uh, is to uh, be one of the first two people uh, to answer this, uh, this trivia question. Uh, send your answers to hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com and the fastest finger first or second uh, will uh, receive a copy of this book. Uh, the first two correct answers to this question. Um, we talk in this episode, this conversation, uh, sort of the uh, two, the bridge here and the middle point uh, between the North American Soccer League and its demise in early 1985 and the rise and the debut of Major League Soccer in uh, 1996 and the various national team exploits in between. 
Um, however, uh, it's uh, rare to find people uh, who got to experience all of those things on the field. Uh, it is so rare, as a matter of fact, that there's only one person who played outdoors with the North American Soccer League, played outdoors with Major League Soccer when it uh, booted up in 1996 and a few years thereafter, as well as on the national team in between. Who is that person, that player, who played in the NASL, in Major League Soccer, and on more than a few occasions for the U.S. national team and uh, a World Cup or two? It's only one person. If you can be one of the first two people to tell me who that player is, he's still around. Uh, be one of the first two people to send an email with that correct answer to hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And again, the first two correct answers to this question will receive a free copy of this book that we're talking about with our guest this week, Hal Phillips. It's called Generation Zero. And let's get back to that conversation, shall we? Here it is. And uh, thanks for playing and uh, continue to listen and enjoy. Let me just backtrack for a second. So for our audience who's unaware and plenty even of soccer fans who are of a generation or two are unaware, can you describe a little bit of just how fallow the, the mid to late 1980s were that ultimately got us to the goal heard around the world in 1989 and that that sort of elusive qualification for 1990 in Italia? I mean, it was a, an alphabet soup of semi-pro leagues. I mean, APSL and the WSA, and you had you had actually two indoor leagues, the MISL and the AISA. And I, I, at some point, I guess it was really just trying to hustle enough of a, of a schedule of games for one players to, to get some games in and, and stay fresh and arguably probably not many opportunities to go abroad because the American game was so, you know, either inconsequential on the world stage or unknown uh, entity for so many people outside of this country. And why would you take a flyer on a, on a kid that played in college and, and maybe some semi-pro and they're not going to be ready even for the second division of the Bundesliga. No, no, there was, there was no, no one, no one, not even the players felt that they were anywhere near ready to go and do that. Um, even in a second division situation. So in short, you know, NASL um, uh, at the turn of the decade, say in 1980, it looked really like things were going great. No franchise moved around, which was completely unusual for NASL. Um, they had now they were adding a third American North American, you know, person that had to be on the field at, at all times. Well, almost immediately things um, went sour and ABC, who was the broadcast partner at the end of the 1980 season, calls the league office and says, um, yeah, we're not going to be broadcasting any games next year. Um, just the season ending soccer bowl, you know, the 1981 soccer bowl. So there's the end of the, the, TV negotiations, the contract runs out in 1981. So all of a sudden, NASL has no television coverage, and it went downhill from there. Last game was played in um, October 1984. So NASL goes away in 1984, but what people don't always realize is that there was a second division um, called the American Soccer League. There were about four different iterations of that through the years, but we won't get into that. They folded in 1983 um, for their own reasons. So there was no first division fission soccer and no second division outdoor soccer as of October, 1984. So gone, nothing. There's no relegation or promotion 
another sort of American exceptionalism thing. You know, we don't do that here. Well, what happens when you don't have promotion and relegation? An entire league goes away. You know, you don't just the bad the bad franchises don't just peter out because there's someone to replace them. A whole league just goes away and is not replaced. So what happens in its place? Um, there's nothing for two years. Absolutely no outdoor soccer. Um, uh, in 1987, they announced a new A-League, another American Soccer League iteration that launches in 1988. So between 1984 and 1988, there's no first division soccer of any kind in America. Um, there's indoor soccer, major, in, you know, major indoor soccer league, the AISA. Um, I'm glad you mentioned them. I had a friend who played in it for the Hershey Impact. Sure. One of the one of the um, most unfortunate team names in the history of American sports at the height of the aid crisis. They're not good. But um, I think that was probably the heyday of um, MISL. You may know more about the um, MISL than I do, Tim. I mean, would, wouldn't you say that 1984 to 1988 was their, their moment in the sun? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, yeah, in the grand arc of the outdoor game, right? I mean, I, I'll be honest. I Even I was intrigued by it and this sort of faster you know, manic version of the game, higher scoring, right? I, you know, I, it was hard not to be romanced by, yeah, you know, a one nothing plotting outdoor game. This is more fun, more exciting. And, and it was kind of easy, I think, frankly, to kind of just jump over there and kind of just play around with that. And frankly, some of these NASL outdoor teams were doing better both on and off the arena turf uh, attendance wise and stuff with, with their indoor game. And it almost felt like, somewhat of a, uh, a tide shift, but I, I guess, you know, if you're a player and there was, there were, there were elements, there still are elements of the indoor game. I mean, it, you, you, you're quicker shifts. You've got to be faster. You got to make quicker decisions with the ball. Um, you know, I, there, there are plenty of, of examples like Precky, for example, right. Probably, you know, a tad bit outside of this generational framework that you put out, but the, here's a guy, right. Who was, uh, literally saved by the indoor game and become became a very big contrib- uh, contrib- contributor, he says, <laughs> to to some national team success. And, yeah. and, and clearly you could look back and say, without that indoor prowess that he developed, you know, he, he would have probably gone away a lot sooner. Well, it's, it's a fascinating time. Um, one of the, the really interesting things is to hear um, all these national team players talk about the indoor league because – they had no other options um, but to play indoor soccer after 1984 if they wanted to be paid. Um, so they did play it. Um, they had to play it. But one of the things that I think, you know, I played a ton of indoor soccer. Um, you know, I played, I played it all through college and I played it, you know, when I was playing semi-pro in my twenties, played a lot of indoor, you know, I prefer the outdoor game, but what, what these guys pointed out to me was playing indoor erodes your skills outdoor. I mean, it's really very difficult to move back and forth between indoor and outdoor um, and be proficient at both. And that was something that I sort of had an inkling of, but didn't really understand until I heard Mike Windishman explaining it to me about how all these guys that he would join up with who were killer indoor players, you get them outside and they just, they weren't any good. And you can see how that affected our, our national team in 1985. They were all indoor players by that time. So, of course, they couldn't qualify for a World Cup. But the real interesting thing about that period to me is there was no guarantee that outdoor soccer was ever going to make it in this country, and everybody knew it. 
a lot of people said, hey, you know, maybe, maybe this indoor thing is what we're really going to, you know, rely on going forward. But this can be televised. It's, it's being televised. You know, the outdoor game has gone away. It's not been replaced. Maybe this is the way Americans need to consume this game. Um, now, that turned out not to be true. But at the time, there was no evidence that the outdoor game was going any great guns. So that was fascinating to me to hear people talk about. Um, not just players saying, well, we get it, we're going to get paid here, but Empresario saying, you know what? ESPN is showing this. Why don't we throw, why don't we throw some money at this? And, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf and the, you know, he, did he own the sting? No, uh, but there was a relationship because uh, Lee Stern, who did own the sting, was a part owner of the White Sox. Still is, I think, to this day. Right. So, uh, so the, the relationship it, was very strong on that front. And they played in the Chicago Stadium or the, the, the new United Center? Indoors, correct. No, it was the Chicago right. Stadium. And then they moved out to the suburbs in the 87, 88 or so, Rosemont. But yes, they and they were out drawing a, lot, a bunch of their outdoor games. And they were they were really, especially those first couple of years in the 80s, they were uh, they were rocking the Chicago Stadium. Hey, there were years in the late 80s when the Sting were out drawing the Bulls. Yep. So this was the, the backdrop to... Um, this golden generation of talent breaking through and changing American soccer forever. I mean, you were asking about how low did it get? Well, indoor was about, was taken over. I mean, indoor people really thought, well, maybe this is the way it's going to go. Well, maybe we don't need outdoor soccer. Um, there was no professional league. Um, and so it was an interesting time and a fascinating sort of turn of events because, you know, lo and behold, this team does break through. They do qualify you know, on the strength of a single goal, it was very, very tenuous. And the rest is history. Everything grew from that moment. Um, but the other, the other, you know, I just got to put a shout out to, you know, all these national team players, while there was no first division soccer, they were playing outdoor soccer. They were doing it in the ethnic, urban ethnic leagues in cities all over this country that had been operating in those cities, you know, since the, in the 1920s. Those leagues, semi-pro leagues, I played in them. Um, some of the soccer was very, very good. And a lot of the guys on that team from 1990 credit um, their play in those leagues, really teaching them how to be pros. Um, so they did play some good soccer, but it was, it was pretty ramshackle. I mean, I, again, I played these leagues. You didn't get paid unless you won. And, you know, that's a good, strong incentive. But um, regular practices, not really. Um, you had to have other jobs, you know, support yourself. It was a completely um, low-grade soccer environment from about 1984 to 1988. Yeah. And it had to be dispiriting, right? I mean, you, you, yeah, you knew, I mean, if you still had that urge, that desire, that sort of that dream, you know, you kind of knew what you kind of had to do if that was even, uh, you know, uh, in the realm of being achie achievable, you kind of just, you just deal with what the, the cards that you're dealt. And I think most of those, most of those guys probably would have, I, I think most of them are pretty modest in that regard that it's like, Hey, you know what? We, the league went away. We had to do something and and we did what we had to do. And it somehow ultimately worked out and, and, you know, for, for the betterment of all of us. And, you know, I, you wonder what it would have happened had not, but look, we can go into all those individual stories and, and that may be another podcast. And frankly, I think we're going to see a lot more people talking about uh, the rediscovery of that. Uh, shall we call it? I don't mean to put it in quotes origin story as the world cup of this year. Uh, finally comes about in November, but I, I, you know, I, we've got a limited amount of time and obviously we ostensibly like to sort of harangue on the, on the, the pro things and of, of your, but I guess I'd like to kind of maybe sort of cul-de-sac, maybe our last set of discussions on 
um, this reemergence of an overlap again, uh, uh, but maybe from a different perspective, right? We're now the international thing qualifying for 1990 and the seeds now of going the other direction, right? A pro league coming out of now newfound interest and or nominal success in the world game, right? It's the inver- inverse of what we were talking about in the 60s and the 70s. Right, right, um, right. A, a little bit of, of, of that, because I think that's lost on a whole generation of people that without this World Cup success in 90, uh, or I think you even put it more bluntly, which I didn't really understand until I read it in your book, that... There was basically this, if we didn't qualify for 1990, there would be no shot in hell of getting the World Cup in 94. And then the stuff that was promised as part of that, too, on a professional level. Right. That, that's a, it's a, you know, I had to sort of take a leap with that thesis because every single player that I talked to on this team said that was the reality. They said, look, we knew it. We knew what FIFA had done to Colombia. We knew that if we did not qualify for Italy, we were not going to get the World Cup in 1994. And this is 1989. They, they knew it. The World Cup was awarded to America on July 4, 1988. Now, this is very it's very hard to prove a negative. Um, FIFA is never going to cop to that. The Federation is never going to cop to that. But all of these players kept telling me that that was the deal. They knew they were told we have to qualify for Italy under our own power or they're going to take the World Cup in 94 somewhere else. So. Um, I think it was true. Um, FIFA operates that way. Um, They had never brought a a World Cup to a country that had never qualified for one. Um, And we had never formally qualified for one since formal qualifying was instituted in 1954. So, yeah, that was a a very sticky business. Um, And it's as a journalist, it's I've sort of had to take a leap of faith and trust these guys and quote them because you can't prove it. They did win. They did qualify for Italy. They secured it. It's not like the pressure alone without maybe a clarification of that wasn't, you know, gigantic enough. Right. I mean, it was there's a lot of self built pressure on that, too, because they everybody knew what was going on or not going on there in the 1980s. I mean, this is, you know, it was like this could be a bit bigger setback for more years if if something like this didn't occur to get into 1990. So this team sort of, the, the, the whole national team program was dropped in the lap of this golden generation in 1986, right after the NASL cohort failed to qualify for Mexico, 86. And every step along the way, um, they were cognizant of the fact that if they lost, if they didn't qualify for the Olympics in Seoul for ni- in 1988, Um, the Federation would bring in a new crop of players. If they didn't qualify for Italy in 1990, the Federation would bring in a new crop of players. They had nowhere else to prove themselves because there was no professional league here that anyone followed or that was worth a damn. So yeah, that pressure was completely internal. And one of the things Bruce Murray stuck, you know, said stuck with me when they were, you know, qualifying um, in CONCACAF in 1989, um, you know, they held camps constantly because there was, you know, very few of them played on, on for professional teams. So they were always in camp. And Bob Ganser was always bringing in new players, new strikers to score because they had a hell of a time scoring goal, you know, from game to game. Bruce Murray said it was the most pressure he's ever experienced in his life because he was fighting for his job every second, you know, every, you know from his own countrymen who were just desperate to make it to because there was nowhere else to go play. 
so yeah, the pressure was enormous. Um, well, I guess I think about it in, in a different way though, because these were the best soccer players in America. Um, the richest, most powerful 300 million person country. And they're scrambling in this way to just make a living, to just stay on the team so they might have a chance to qualify for the World Cup. You could say that about field hockey players in this country. You could say that about water polo players. There's a lot of really great athletes in America that are, you know, not living a glamorous life. Um, but that's something else that Generation Zero did. They, they brought soccer into the mainstream and made it a going concern, you know, when they secured the World Cup in 94. That means Major League Soccer starts a year later. Um, the APSL um, you mentioned, you know, that was all they had until then. And no one wanted to play in that. There was no money there. So, yeah, it was a very tenuous time. And there was a lot of internal pressure to succeed, uh, quite apart from everything else that was happening around them. So, okay. So let's uh, tell me about MLS and the, it's embedding in the awarding of the world cup. Uh, was that a fait accompli? Was that, was that a, a non-starter uh, in FIFA's mind? Um, Cause clearly, obviously it was a legacy that many people, you know, both stateside and internationally wanted to see happen. And uh, I just wonder if there was any pushback or, dalliance I, I i my sense is that actually it was expected to start actually the year after the world cup and it didn't no it was, it was supposed to start before the 94 world cup and yes it was embedded in the agreement to host the 94 um tournament um that the u.s had to start a a a proper first division and when they said that you know at that point the a-league and the and the apsl existed so fifa looked at them and said that is not a proper first division. You have to start one before the World Cup in 1994. Now, they didn't meet that deadline. They announced it in 93, and it didn't launch until 96. So, yeah, it was part and parcel of the deal. Um, and uh, we didn't meet the deadline. <laughs> but they forgave us, apparently, and um, held the tournament here. And um, MLS launched uh, two years later. And, you know, that's the other thing that I want to make sure that people understand is that that th those original MLS franchises were stocked with guys from this team in 1989, just stocked. I mean, all those guys finished their career in MLS. It was really their last, their last hurrah. They went and played in Europe after 1990 and came back and played for the U S at, at USA 94. And then when MLS needed them to get this thing off the ground, they came back and started them. And I've always said, I think the, the, the U S women's national team could take a cue from them. They really should be throwing themselves at this club, this this outdoor first division that they're trying to start right now. Um, and uh, not, not enough of them are playing for those club teams, in my view. All right. Well, I can't let you. And this is great. I, and, and the book just is so there's so many different uh, explorations. I mean, we can get to Kyle Rowe Jr. We did there's so many things we didn't get to. Kyle Rowe Jr. Oh, my God. The superstar. That's right. Well, and a former guest, a former guest of ours as well. Oh, he was. Oh, good That's for you. Amazing. And uh, but um, I, I can't let you go. And, and so we'll we'll promote the heck out of the book. You you know that for sure. Thank you. Uh, uh, I can't let you go though without sort of your uh, current opinions of the U.S. soccer situation uh, in the moment. Uh, we're qualified for. Uh, the World Cup this year, um, you know, after a stumble the last time around and and the state of Major League Soccer. I mean, you know, fast forward from from this origin story 
Um, we're 25 years plus now in this still single entity league. Um, uh, while so much has been, um, so much progress has been made. I mean, soccer specific stadiums. I mean, who knew that was a thing 15 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, everything available and, and, and the, the fandom and, and 20, you know, almost 30 franchises. And, uh, but frankly, I, there's, there's, there's some pangs in the background that, that I, I are we possibly starting to maybe replicate some of the things that um, maybe kind of undermine the game back when we were fans? So I guess I guess the question in there is because I hear the Euro snobbery, right? The game is not nearly as good as even an exhibition in Green Bay this weekend between the two top, you know, two top European teams, you know, even though it's like half their teams. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, I can watch the premier league and all that stuff. And why would I waste time going to an MLS game? Right. Um, the derision and the, you know, it's not, it's not all that. And I just, I guess the question is we've achieved so much since that time and, and, and these foundational roots that you describe over that 20 year period in that generation. So crucial to those, that those successes, we wouldn't be even having this conversation without them, but yet still there's, something out there, some things out there that um, conveniently still want to throw brickbats at all of it and, and say, it's not all that. It'll never be all that. And we're, you know, we'll just never be, we'll never be competitive on the world stage. And, and it's, it's, it's a fantasy to think we ever will. Well, they can pound sand and let me tell you why. Um, winning world cups is hard. Um, only six or seven countries have ever done it. Um, the U.S. national team right now is as deep and talented and young as it has ever, ever been. Um, I'm not saying that they're going to go and, and win in, in Qatar, although they could make some noise. But I think they're a semifinal threat when we host in 2026. The core talents on this team are that good. And they're not just good because they've been playing you know, in MLS. They're good because they're playing in the best leagues in the world. And they're playing in the middle of the field. And um, I've, I've never been more sanguine about their prospects. 2018 was a jolt. And um, I, you haven't gotten to the epilogue yet, but, you know, required a major rewrite from me, you know, um, when they didn't qualify. But you know who else didn't qualify in 2018? Italy, Chile, and the Netherlands. Netherlands, yeah. Yeah, these are, these are major soccer countries. It's hard to qualify for a world cup. It's even harder to win one. What I look at with MLS is, is that they have built an extraordinary fan culture and to, that supports franchises in and of itself. In fact, they're doing it without television. I mean, the ratings for individual MLS games are not good. This Apple TV deal that they just signed is a boon to the league. They got 300 million bucks annually. And I think it's going to be a home run because they're not pulling great numbers for regular season games um, on ESPN and FS1 right now. Um, they do pretty well, you know, when the playoffs come, but we're, we're talking about a different kind of sports um, landscape. Now think about hockey um, right now. TNT has the um, NHL package. They do terrible um, with their midseason, midweek games on TNT you know, 300, 400,000 viewers like that, you know, those are MLS numbers, but, you know, come playoff time, 
that's why they spent the money. And that is perfectly fine. And I, I would argue that the fan culture and the sellouts and the, the stadia that have been built to accommodate MLS clubs are superior to those in the NHL. In the NHL. So are they going to challenge the NBA or NFL in this country? Probably not. But they're now part of the big four. I mean, they're right there with hockey, and I think they're, they're higher than hockey. So I'm, I'm quite sanguine. And if, and, if, and if women ever stop watching women's soccer in this country, that thing, that's going to blow up. I mean, it'll go crazy. Right now, I mean, like the WNBA, 70% of the, the viewers of the WNBA are men. At some point, women are going to start watching women's basketball, and women are going to start watching women's club soccer. And when they do, look out. So I think that the, the prospects for soccer in this country are, are incredible. And, you know, FIFA saw this in 1984 when they started sniffing around because, you know, it's the most, it's the most dynamic um, consumer culture on, on earth. They don't have to, we don't have to, soccer doesn't have to dominate the sports culture here to make a lot of money and, you know, maintain a lot of visibility and interest. So I don't know. I'm pretty, do I sound like a booster, Tim? Am I sold or what? No, I, 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 and I, I'm, I'm with you, I guess, to a point. I mean, I, you know, number one is the sort of that nagging sort of like, uh, is this, you know, are we kind of, are we near peak again? And, 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 and things are going to, you know, cause the MLS growth story, right. You know, petered in the early two thousands and then had to claw its way back up again. And, and, and all that too. I, I'm, you know, I, I'll, I worry about the money in the game. I mean, money's always been part of the game. Money's always been part of sports, always been about business, but it's on such a graduated level now with private equity owning teams or, or yeah. shares of teams or, or what I hate, you know, I can't stand in my CFC in MLS, not because they're a New York team. And, you know, cause I like the Red Bulls actually, um, <laughs> but I'm now I'm going to undermine what I, what I'm going to say. I just, I despise that Manchester city ownership model where they own teams in like six or seven different leagues and they're starting to win championships in all of them. Now, maybe that is the future and I just need to get over it. But I worry about all this money and the the the, the minor or major ownership stakes that that American, you know, private equity entities or the 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 super league that sort of came and went but probably comes back again in Europe. And I, I just, you know, I, I worry about the fan culture. I worry about all that stuff that MLS has built up and, and remember a reminder, hello, it's still, it's still single entity, right? Mm -hmm. They haven't even taken the blinders off yet to allow these things to kind of live and breathe and, and, and maybe even be more remunerative and all that kind of stuff. Right. So isn't the good news holding though? that back, right? Yeah. But isn't, the, is, isn't it, isn't, isn't the, the, the flip side of that is that you cannot buy a championship in MLS because of the structure that they have. Yeah, I mean that's that's a very good counter argument for sure. I, I, I guess I'm just generally sort of saying I there's so much money in in the it's look at the end of the day a lot of this is about American sports in particular. It seems less about the franchise than and the soccer than it seems about like the real estate and the stadium and the stuff around it and the revenue streams and stuff. And again, I'm trying not to be naive as an MBA, right? But um, I just I, I you know I in some respects I wonder if some of the golden goose gets gets cooked here uh, by trying to be a little too greedy, maybe just a little bit before MLS is ready for, I don't know, that big four treatment. I don't know. I, you know, I guess it's, again, I'm, Hal, I'm going to go back to my, my childhood yeah. and the abandonment that I felt in 1984 
And it's very hard, I guess. And maybe this is a therapeutic exercise, this friggin' podcast, but I don't know. I just, I, I'm fearful of something and, and maybe I shouldn't be, but I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I want to see be. it succeed. Right. The other thing that I think really jumps out at me when I go to an MLS match is just how young everyone is. I mean, that was one of the, the instigant, you know, the instigators for this book. I mean, when I go, when I went to watch games in the, I guess the early teens, 2010, you know, 20 teens, you know, I realized I was the oldest guy in these bars. Um, there's no boomers in there. Um, and if there are people older than me, they were born somewhere else. Um, soccer has, has taken on a, a, a sort of a, a toehold in the culture with people far younger than us who have no idea what happened in 1970 and 1985. That's why I wrote this book. I think they, they will want to know. But I, I see it as a, a much firmer foundation of fan loyalty. And in fact, I think that will save MLS going down the road. Do, do fans really care that much in Portland if they don't make the playoffs? No, they show up anyway and scream and yell and light flares. It's great. That is the kind of thing that supports fan culture, you know, in, in more storied soccer cultures, like in England. The, I have, you know, I have a lot of friends who are Fulham fans. I've reported on them in the early aughts, you know, when it was just becoming an American haven for ESPN.com. And, and a lot of these guys got hooked on Fulham soccer. Well, Fulham, they go to the games, whether they're in the premiership or the championship, they don't care. And in fact, they, they really have their tour de torn. They sort of like being in the championship because they can win. Um, they go to, they go to the premiership and they just get pounded for a year and they get sent back down. That's no fun, but that doesn't, that doesn't hurt the fan culture. They're happy to be in a second division where they can get together with their buddies and drink and wave scarves and mingle and, and, and wallow in that culture. And I think that's something that as much as we love the Cosmos and the team men, Tim, I, I don't think that existed in ASL. Do you? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, uh, and it's hard to grow a culture, right? I mean, you could give major league soccer a ton of credit for that. You know, I, I think as the years roll on, as new generation of fans become hooked, especially because they've been playing as well and they can, they can, and, and get a seat at a decent price in a really uh, form fitting and appropriate stadium environment and culture. Um, you know, th- that's not easy to do. And, and you have to believe that that grafting is really starting to blossom now into some real shrubbery that, you know, is, is substantial and long lasting. Um, I, uh, I, I guess where, um, I, I guess where it sort of boils down to it, it comes back maybe to where we started our conversation. I mean, you and I became aware of this North American soccer league thing back in the day in our, you know, in our erstwhile youth. Right. And, (laughs) and, and it, something touched us, it connected with us. And if, if, if fans or, or potential fans of that age now, are are now able to see those things and know that it's gonna it's more stable. There, there is no threat, despite how lousy they've been over the last six years. Chicago Fire will probably still be here next year. Um, you can still and then the merch is widely available, so you can you can you can wear and put stuff on your wall as to the, your heart's content. Um, that's a hell of a lot better place than where we were initially uh, made aware and had the rug pulled away from us uh, so so violently you know not 10 years I, ago. 
Well, let, let me let me admit something and then go back to one of the themes of the book that I'll harp on yet again. Um, I love the, the Minutemen. They went away in three years. I love the team. They went away. They went off to Jacksonville after a couple of years. And then what? Uh, did they go to Calgary? I don't even know. No, uh, they, was, they actually they actually thrillers. stayed around and, and became an ASL team for you. Right. That's right. So the point is, is um, NASL was not key to my loving soccer. It, in, it wasn't as important, I should say, as playing soccer. I mean, I was a participant yep. um, in this game. I played it. I was good at it. Um, my friends played it. Um, and, it, you know, every year it became a little bit more of a, of a big deal, you know, um, socially, you know, when I played it. Um, so, yeah, I, I suppose I could, you know, you could worry about the rug being pulled out from under us again, but it, it wasn't as important as my participation. And when you look at a crowd, you know, in Austin, um, I saw a game, um, uh, the Austin FC, um, I think they were playing Charlotte, um, places full of people, young people. Do those people, they don't have any of this baggage, first of all, but you know what they all have? They all played this game. They all played it when they were kids. It's now de rigueur. If you're 30 years old, you played soccer growing up. You might, you, you might not have been any good, but you played it just like you played baseball growing up. They have a, a, they have a, a grounding in the game that we, did, that, that we had, but we were the first ever to have it. So now it's part of the culture in that way. So I think these franchises and MLS are built on much firmer ground. I, you know what? It's a, it's a very, that's a very good uh, observation. And I think actually it's, it's maybe some of the, uh, the, the jet fuel behind some of these other sports that, that some of what you mentioned earlier, uh, similar, right? It's, it's sort of that it, there's much more of a direct connection when uh, it, having played and there's some level of success and then know that there's something down the street on a professional level that uh, the very least gives you sort of something to dream about, uh, but on a practical level actually could give you a, a, an avenue, right? And I think in a, in a, in a smaller sense yet budding way, you know, stuff like uh, Premier League lacrosse, right? Lacrosse has kind of always been on that launching pad sure. you know, for the last 10 or 15 years, kind of similarly, um, but there's a whole generation now of, I mean, th that culture, very strong major league rugby, you know, cricket is coming, uh, you know, there's a whole, you know, uh, 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 diaspora of, of Indian and South Asian and, and even European fans who, you know, some people like our pal, Steve Holroyd would say that cricket is almost like is the, is soccer in the 1960s, uh, in this country. So, uh, you know, I, Maybe maybe a thousand flowers may flourish from that very model and that very belief. And and interestingly, in a couple of years, maybe you and I have a conversation about, if you will, the good old days of how soccer got to this point. And now we're talking about other sports getting to the same level. Well, you can look at it. Um, look at hockey in this country. Now, did every kid grow up playing hockey in the 1970s? No. I mean, I, I did. I, I, I'm from Boston. I played hockey like a madman. I love hockey. But the majority of 57 year olds in this country did not because they grew up in Arizona or they didn't have the money because it's not cheap to, to outfit yourself with skates. Um, so hockey's always going to struggle with this particular issue in, in this country, never in Canada where everyone played hockey in this country, everyone didn't play hockey. So they're always going to be um, a second class sporting citizen beside baseball, basketball, football, and now soccer. You've got to play it as kids in order to have a broad base of support. Uh, so you have old guys like us sitting around talking about how you played it back in the day. 
Well, look, I, I love the fact that you've you've uh, created what I think is, frankly, a, 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 probably by all accounts, a definitive uh, history of this particular era and its importance, because I think you kind of hinted at that before, maybe unwittingly. Um, there are younger generations of fans who are playing and watching and and in various phases of fandom and hopefully for for life or for a long period of their uh, of their lives um and uh are ignorant and struggle with this history thing that actually was part of this american game you know that there was you know that the timbers and the sounders and the white caps i mean these the original franchises actually existed in this thing called the north what's that what was that what, yeah. what do you mean since 1976 right I, but though, you know, to me, I, first of all, I love that. And I, and I, I, I'm happy that MLS begrudgingly gave way to that, you know, earthquakes, all that kind of stuff. I mean, with all due respect, I'd like to see more of that only because not because I want to relive those golden days of my youth or whatever the hagiography of that, that was, but just because it, it admits on some level, on a particular team, particular logo, whatever, that there was something before this league in 1996 and some of which we talked about today, a whole bunch of it, even before that, if you want to go into the history books, right? The ASL versions and stuff. Sure. Um, just to have people curious about that, to me, feels like success because people will then start to not maybe apologize for where the American game is relative to the world stage, um, but maybe embrace it and revel in it and recognize that still, in many respects, we kind of have nowhere to go but up still from this from this perch even after the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Yeah, I think it's, uh, well, it's, it's no mistake that, 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 that naming convention exists in the Pacific Northwest where they, they have NASL um, heritage. Um, when NASL folded, um, we didn't mention it, there was a, a great semi-pro league that, that formed out West called the Western Soccer Alliance. So that actually showed up before the A-League and it was a little more semi-pro, but um, man, it stretched from San Diego to Edmonton at one point. And, you know, that happened in the Pacific Northwest. Why? Because they played soccer growing up there in the 70s. They liked it. They didn't want to lose it. And, yeah, we're going to call our team the Timbers. We remember the Timbers. We want that to live on. I think that's healthy. And uh, you can only call so many teams, you know, Cincinnati FC. Um, I, I think there's got to be a, a little bit more um, diversity in the naming conventions for MLS going forward. And, there's nothing wrong with going backwards, um, but not the team end. Uh, that was never very good. I, I'm for the caribou of Colorado with the uh, uniforms and all, but um, with the fringe, you know. with the with the with the with the suede fringe. Absolutely. Oh, those were the days, Tim. Hal, this has been great. Tell us how uh, about uh, what you're doing to promote the book. Um, obviously, what it's called and all that stuff. And I, as we're recording this uh, near the end of July, it is according to Amazon the number one new release in. A couple of categories: soccer, soccer biographies. Um, it's it's great. It's 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 in depth. It's it's a it's a a, a fun read. It's 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 dense, but it's not. Uh, it's anecdotal. It's it's historical. It's it's and it's accessible. It's accessible to people who aren't even soccer geeks like us. Um, what are you doing to promote it, and uh, where can people find it, and, and all that kind of stuff? Is there a documentary to come out of this? What documentary? <laughs> yeah, I'm working on a screenplay. Um, no, it's it's up on Amazon now, and um, you know you gotta you gotta treat the algorithm first, and, and you have to treat it best in order for it to love you back. So, um, but uh, I think in August um, August one it, it'll be at BarnesandNoble.com and 
Target and all sorts of digital retailers, and it'll be in finer uh, independent bookstores everywhere starting in August, August as well. But you know, we're we're marketing to clubs and associations, and um, you're talking about kids, um, uh, our kids, our young players, and our our thirty year old. Um, Austin FC fans, are they going to care about this? I don't know, but you know who does? Their parents, they live this. And the people who have kids in, in the club, their parents actually are the people that are going to be reading this book, not the kids. So um, they should get in touch with me, associations and clubs, or get in touch with my publisher, Dickinson Moses Press, about uh, about uh, getting some copies out to these clubs, because I do think people will appreciate the history and maybe not the young folks so much, but uh, there's a lot of old people around, Tim. They love soccer. <laughs> yeah, I think you're. I think two of them are talking to each other right now. <laughs> All right. So, uh, uh, and lastly, but uh, uh, where can people find you and/or follow you, uh, both specifically for this book and generally and otherwise? Well, I'm blogging on soccer-specific stuff at Gen Zero, all one word. Dot HalPhillips.net. Um, that site's really come together. There's all sorts of great content there, and. Um, I, I researched this book for six years, Tim. I have so many cool photos and graphics. I have a really awesome Instagram feed at genzero.halphillips. Check that out. Um, and uh, they can get a hold of me via the site and, um, and Instagram. That's probably the best way to do it. You know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to hold my nose and use Twitter more. Um, uh, so I'm at, at Mandarin Hal there. But um, uh, God, it's hard. Twitter's just... Yeah, it's a beast. You got to fill it. I, it. I'll be honest. For for our podcast, I mean, I try to I try to populate a couple of times a day. On uh, I mean, usually with images that are are not easily found or or unique or hopefully maybe even exclusive. Sometimes, uh, just as sort of examples or like uh, just a hint of what people might be missing by not listening to the show. But um, yeah, I do Facebook, Twitter, and and, and Instagram. I got to tell you, Twitter is. Uh, by far the most active and most well subscribed, and I just people seem to be more uh, quickly responsive there uh, than any other place. So it may be kind of a and you know in a couple of years maybe something completely different. But uh, I it, sadly I do think it's worth the effort, um, and I think you'll find it such if you you know can um, you know figure out some some uh, logical way to to kind of somewhat regularly uh, uh, tweet. Um, you well, know, you got to create painful. the content and, you know, we got to create the content and, and send people notice of, of what that content is and where it is. Um, and I've always done this. I, I'm a working journalist. Um, I worked, you know, for 30 years in the golf business, almost, well, not exclusively, but mostly. So I'm used to doing it, but this is a whole new beast, a whole new um, spectrum of folks that I'm reaching out to. So it may take a little time, but Amazon's where you find the book. And uh, but definitely do follow the site and Instagram and Twitter and we'll catch up to each other, to all these people eventually. Thank you for making time. Uh, I, I, to be honest with you, I didn't know about this book until your PR people reached out. Um, and the minute I saw it, I was like, OK, OK. And by the, <laughs> no, but the reason I said OK was because, OK, I, you know, there's a cop, there's a picture of you know, a qualifying World Cup team on there. I guess, okay, so pro sports, not necessarily there. But then literally I've seen in the last couple of weeks, a couple of other books that are sort of trying to take uh, advantage, I guess, of the the upcoming World Cup and stuff and try to tell some of this story. Um, sure. And, but I, I tell you, when I read it, I started reading it. It's like, this plays out like a history of my childhood and just, you know, it cut from the same cloth. So I, at least to this reader, um, this, this book really hit home and then some. And um, 
I'm certain that there are others out there that have been kind of waiting for a book like this to validate perhaps what they went through and appreciate the fact that they weren't the only ones doing it. Well, we're here to help in all these regards. There's a lot of good books about the broad history of soccer in this country. There's one that called From Football to Soccer, which oh, is Oh, sure. That's a that's a that's a great book. And the great cover, book, the, the new cover is awesome. The, yeah, the, but it, you know, that that's a big long story. It's um, yeah, you got to be into it. You got to be it's it's a kind of yeah, right, agree. It's also it's you know, uh, soccer was it's a fascinating history, but it, it's a it's a for 100 years it, you know, it went nowhere. It it never grew. Um, we want to pick up the story when it started growing and why. So that's why I picked the seventies and the eighties. And I don't think anyone's written about it in this way. So I'm, I'm happy for that. And, um, it is world cup, um, friendly in terms of subject matter. I mean, we're in a place now, and I think you can tell how positive I am about the national team programs on both sides, men and women and the youth soccer revolution of the seventies that started it without that. We're nowhere still. All right, as they say, run, don't walk to get a copy of this fantastic book. Uh, We literally and proverbially uh, just scratched the surface. Lots of great little bits and pieces of soccer history uh, in the late 60s, 1970s, 1980s, leading up to uh, the ultimate uh, reclamation, I guess, of the U.S. soccer uh, history in 1990, 1994, and then some, uh, leading into 1996 and the launch of today's Major League Soccer, still going strong and augmenting uh, by the month and the year, uh, new franchises, uh, etc. It is called Generation Zero, Founding Fathers, Hidden Histories, and the Making of Soccer in America by our guest this week, Hal Phillips. And uh, it is published Uh, by the good people at Dickinson Moses Press. Uh, It is available now wherever fine books are found. Of course, you can uh, order a copy of it through our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 270 uh, with Hal Phillips, and you can quickly be whisked to Amazon to get it in digital or hard, actually paperback, uh, copy version uh, for your own uh, amusement and enjoyment. Buy a few copies, why don't you, via that that method. And again, if you would like to win yourself a free copy of said publication, just rewind this little show here to the, uh, to the little uh, mid-roll uh, 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 promotion that we did with our little uh, trivia question. And if you are the first one of the, uh, you are one of the first two, we're going to give two, give away two copies if we, uh, uh, your uh, fastest finger first, whoever uh, sends us the first two correct answers to that trivia question embedded in the middle of this episode. So if you fast forwarded through this, shame on you, go back and rewind it and, and find out what that question is. Uh, and again, you send that the answer to hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you will be notified if you uh, win said copy of said book. And of course, hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com is indeed the uh, place to send us email generally as well. That's convenient, right? And again, our website, goodseatsstillavailable.com, all the episodes that we've ever done and will continue to do are found there. But of course, why would you go to the website when you can subscribe 
or follow wherever you get podcasts so you make sure you don't uh, miss out on any of our episodes to come. We're available wherever you can find podcasts, for God's sakes. By all means, do so. On social media, you'll find us at Good Seats uh, Still on Twitter. You'll find us at Good Seats Still Available on Instagram. Uh, you'll find us at uh, Good Seats Still Available on Facebook as well. If you'd like to follow Hal, you could do that. He's on Instagram at Gen Zero dot Hal Phillips. Uh, you can also follow Hal on Twitter at Mandarin Hal Phillips. Mandarin, M-A-N-D-A-R-I-N, Hal Phillips, all one word. And of course, the website, genzero.halphillips.net. All the great ways to follow Hal, the adventures of this book, uh, stuff from the book. And uh, again, uh, run, don't walk and get yourself a copy or win yourself a copy as the case may be. Thank you to Jerry Payne for knob twiddling this week, as always. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I sure did. More to come next week. Stay tuned. As they say, watch your feeds. And uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.